Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. We've got just a couple of these left before we are either committed to being in person or committed to checking out the live stream online during Sunday morning, or maybe just checking in after we post the recording of the service later on in the week on our website. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast over the last year or so, and I know uh, I've enjoyed doing it and been grateful for everyone who's helped to make it happen. Uh, But this season is coming to a close. So uh, like I said, second to last week this week. This week, we're looking at Judges chapter 11. We have a new judge coming on the scene, a man by the name of Jephthah. And this is another one of those weeks where it it will feel probably a little bit like the same old story. Uh, You know, in chapter 10, Israel's once again doing evil, and we start to feel like a broken record. It occurred to me this week that perhaps it's time we found a saying uh, to describe broken records other than broken records, because, you know... Young people don't know what records are. Uh, So I guess for those of you who aren't familiar, when a record used to break, it would get stuck on a portion of a song, maybe just a few seconds or maybe just half a second, and it would play it over and over again as the the little scratcher that deciphered the noise that was meant to be recorded in the grooves on the vinyl record uh, would keep skipping back to the same spot over and over over again. So... um, So this might feel a little bit like a broken record, the story of Israel falling away from God, the raising up of a judge, but I was thinking about, you know, listening to a song being stuck on a certain part over and over again, and I thought, well, what what would happen if each time it repeated, if each time it played, you actually noticed something new about that portion of the song? You know, what if each time you heard the part repeat, you noticed a new instrument or a new harmony was suddenly highlighted in your mind? And... And I think sometimes uh, there's something to taking another look at uh, something or taking another listen to something. And so while the story might seem like the same old story and we might live in a society where we're obsessed with newness, uh, I think that uh, if we approach this with the right mindset, we uh, we can really glean some positive things out of the depth of familiarity that can come through repetition the expertise that repetition can bring. And so uh, if in your mind you're getting tired of the same old story of Israel, I want to just encourage you, resist the urge to tune out. Uh, This time around, maybe you're meant to see something that you haven't seen before. This time around, maybe you're meant to gain something that you didn't already possess from all the other times around, uh, around the mountain of this story. So anyhow, in chapter 10, like I said, Israel's once again doing evil. They are, end up being oppressed by their enemies for 18 years. Uh, we talked about this last week, but they cry out to God, and God says, I'm not going to help you. Uh, let those other gods you've been serving save you. But Israel persists in this repentance, which is a nice break from the cycle that we've been on. And so Israel, despite God saying, no, I'm not going to help you, continues to cry out to him, continues to repent Uh, And to the point where the author writes that God couldn't bear Israel's misery anymore. And because of that, at the end of chapter 10, God not being able to bear Israel's misery, God decides to raise up another deliverer for Israel. And we meet that new deliverer in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Right out of the gates, we're thinking, hey, this guy seems well-suited to be deliverer, a mighty warrior. That's great. 
he's a Gileadite. Uh, Gilead was uh, a region that was the hill country that was east of the Jordan River. Uh, keep in mind, most of Israel is west the jo- of the Jordan River, uh, but part of the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, three of the tribes are living on the east side of the Jordan River, and that part of the on the east side that that this part of Manasseh's dwelling in, it kind of became known as Gilead. The Gileadites were a part of Manasseh, a clan, or if you will, or however you want to break that apart. Anyhow, in this time of the judges, a lot of the oppression came from the north and, and from the east. And so these tribes that are over on the other side of the river are, are kind of on the front lines of this oppression. They're, on, they're in the rugged borderlands where trouble continually comes from. And so here we have this Jephthah, a mighty warrior living on these borderlands. You know, think of like a, a really manly mountain man type guy out here on the borderlands. Uh, and yeah, what, what better kind of a, a deliverer could be raised up than this self-sufficient guy? Although in the next line we read that his father was Gilead and his mother was a prostitute. And at this point, we might be thinking, okay, this is a little weird. And not just because his dad has the same name as his clan or tribe, but uh, because there's, there's God now choosing the son of a prostitute as the next judge of Israel, as the next deliverer of Israel. And so, I mean, you imagine the scenario. So you've got a man, Gilead, living over here in Gileadite country, and, and he's got a few sons with his wife. And, and then at some point in his life, in a moment of of desire, a moment of weakness, uh, he spends some time with a prostitute, and she ends up having a child as well. And you imagine if this man were to choose which of his sons he would raise up as the next ruler of Israel, it would seem likely he would choose his firstborn son, uh, maybe slightly less likely he would choose his secondborn son, but, but there is no way in the world that this guy would choose out of his heirs this illegitimate child. You know, the evidence of his unfaithfulness, the, the, the living evidence of maybe his worst mistake in, in his married life. And this is not who he would choose. And yet, in this story, this is who God chooses. And when these details show up in the story, things that we wouldn't expect, we know we've been seeing that as like a, a signpost that says, hey, pay attention here. There's something here that God wants you to understand. And I think the fact that God is choosing the son of a prostitute to raise up as a judge over Israel is just a good reminder that God does not look at people the same way that we look at people. God looks at the heart. I'm reminded of the story of Samuel going to choose the next king of Israel, and he goes to this man named Jesse, and he asks for all of Jesse's sons, and and one after one, the sons come through, and God tells Samuel, yeah, this son before you might look like a great king, but he's not the king that I'm after, and, and God tells Samuel, look, I look at the heart, and and God doesn't look at people the same way that we do. Things that, that we totally miss are things that God clues into. Things that God values are things that we often totally forget about. And so, as his people, we really need his input. We need his insight, uh, because we, are, we should be, at least, admittedly uh, incapable of accurately assessing the world around us, and accurately assessing the people around us. Uh, God can look at people and know their heart. Uh, there's not a single one of us who can look at someone else and, and understand all the mysteries of their heart. And so, for whatever reason, God chooses uh, this man, Jephthah, uh, despite him coming from uh, a place of dishonor, 
uh, a home life of, I'm sure, upheaval and, and instability, and yet God says, this is the one I'm going to raise up. Anyhow, verse 2, it says, Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they actually drove Jephthah away, and they said, you're not going to get any inheritance in our family because you're the son of another woman. And so Jephthah fled from his brothers. He settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Again, not exactly uh, the first item we would look to see on a resume of who we're choosing for the next ruler of Israel. Anyhow, it says sometime, sometime later the Ammonites are oppressing Israel and the elders of Gilead go to find this Jephthah. Uh, he has a reputation as a mighty warrior, remember? And so the elders of Gilead go out uh, and find Jephthah and they ask him to be their commander. And he's like, hey, you guys ran me out of town, you know, saying, hey, you're not going to have an inheritance with us. You're not one of us. And now you want my help. And they're like, well, hey, if you help us, you can be a ruler over Gilead. You can rule over this region of Manasseh that's, that's to the east of the Jordan. And Jephthah's like, you guys promise. And they're, yes, yes, for reals this time, Jephthah, we really mean it. And so he agrees to be their leader. And so they anoint him leader before the Lord at Mizpah. And Mizpah was this place in Gilead. It was east of the Jordan River. And and it's believed by some that uh, this is the place where the tabernacle or maybe the Ark of the Covenant was during this time uh, in the period of the the judges. And so a significant place where they would do this kind of thing, anoint a new leader in Israel. Uh, Now, this is interesting because it says they anoint him leader before the Lord at Mizpah. And what we're seeing in this moment is a reinsertion of the Lord into the decisions and the empowerment of his people. Remember in Judges 10, God was curiously absent from the accounts of the, the couple of judges who came be, before Jephthah and, and, uh, and before Abimelech, and yet now, now he's back. Now Jephthah's back. So remember back in Judges 10, God was curiously absent from the accounts of the judges who were coming before Jephthah, And then now here in the middle of chapter 11, as Jephthah's being anointed to lead before the Lord, we're seeing God reinserted into the narrative. So it's like Yahweh is now back. He's back with his people to help them. Verse 12, it says, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite kings with a question. What do you have against me that you are attacking my country? And the kings of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. They said, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and all the way to the Jordan. And so now we're giving you trouble because we want you to give it back to us peaceably. So what's coming up now is this 300-year-old land dispute in the Middle East, which you would think this would be an easy settle, right? I mean, land disputes in the Middle East usually get settled right away. That's a joke. So Jephthah sends back this super lengthy reply to the Ammonites, and he explains to them that the land in question is Israel's rightful territory. He says, hey, look, we want it not from you guys. We want it from the Amorites after the Amorites attacked us on our way, you know, through the wilderness way back in the day. And then he closes his argument with this logic found in verse 23. He says, look, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right do you have to now come and take it over? It says in verse 24, will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord God has given us, we are going to possess. He says, are you better than Balak, son of Zipporah, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? He says, for 300 years, we've lived here, occupied Heshbon, Eror, and the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. How come you didn't take them during the last 300 years? 
So then he says, look, I haven't wronged you, but you are doing wrong by waging war against me. So he says, let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute between this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Essentially what Jephthah is saying here is, is saying to this Ammonite king, look, the land wasn't yours in the first place. We won it in battle against these other, our God gave it to us in battle against these other peoples. Hey, if you want land, you take whatever land your God, Chemosh, would give you. And, and I think to understand the nuances of what Jephthah is saying, uh, we should just take a moment to try to climb inside the mindset of these ancient Near East people. And, and to help you enter that mindset, it might it might be helpful to say that, that um, sometimes the Old Testament reads more understandably if you read the whole thing a little bit more like an international political thriller, where you have this protagonist, God Yahweh, who claims to be the Most High God, and he's reclaiming humanity as his own people through his chosen nation, the nation of Israel. And these are a people that he's eventually, uh, his chosen nation, Israel, is eventually going to include people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, uh, according to what the prophets say about what he's going after. And yet, in the meantime, as God's establishing his nation and reconciling people to himself through Israel, there are these other gods, these other divine beings, like this Kibosh, who's brought up by Jephthah, these other beings who have been given possession of all the other nations. Uh, at the Tower of Babel, there's reference to it in Deuteronomy 32, that God dispossessed you know, the people of earth, turned them over to these other gods that they were you know, hell-bent on worshiping, and, and then out of those dispossessed nations, God has called Abraham to himself. He's establishing the nation of Israel for himself. And, and so much of the Old Testament is covering this kind of political international warfare that's being waged between God, the ultimate divine being, and these other divine beings who have been given authority uh, over humanity and over specific nations. And so Yahweh is determined to recover for himself a people who are destined to fulfill humanity's purpose of ruling and reigning with Yahweh in his kingdom. At the same time, these other gods, these powers and principalities of darkness, as Paul calls them in the New Testament, these other gods are determined to hold on to humanity and, and to usher humanity into a destiny of death and separation from Yahweh. And so then the idea that different nations had different gods was, was just how the authors of scripture read it. And so when someone like Jephthah is looking at an Ammonite and he's saying, look, Yahweh gave me this land, you can have whatever your God gives to you. It, it can also be read, I mean, a little bit like a challenge, right? I mean, the argument of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament is that there is no God like our God. We serve the most high God. And here, look, we're going to take what God gives us and you Ammonites serve Chemosh. He is a lesser God, but you take whatever he gives you. And Jephthah's claims are kind of like a deliberate challenge to Chemosh's supremacy. The, you know, this demigod who would masquerade to the Ammonites as some kind of almighty is about to come to face-to-face -face with the almighty God of Israel. And Yahweh is about to show his supremacy over these other gods. And the hope is that as Yahweh demonstrates his supremacy through how he works through his people Israel, that the other nations would see God for who he is. They would see Yahweh as the most high God. They would abandon the worship of the other gods and they'd be grafted into Israel to become followers of Yahweh. Anyhow, the challenge is set. The battle is on. And in verse 28, we read, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. And so the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah 
He crossed over Gilead and Manasseh. He passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and there he advanced against the Ammonites. The Spirit came upon Jephthah, yes, and so there's this evidence of Yahweh being present in the story. He's leading his people into battle. You're thinking, yes, we can't lose when God is on our side. But unfortunately, on the next verse, we take a little bit of a detour from what I would say was God's ideal for the situation. Verse 30, it says, Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, he says, then whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites is going to be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, any of us who have ever, you know, just gotten carried away in the moment of something, we can maybe understand why Jephthah would go here. I mean, God's spirit's on Jephthah. He's getting all ramped up for the battle, and so then he kind of makes this weird religious vow. I mean, the vow isn't necessary. It's not commanded by God. There's no explanation of why Jephthah would do this other than, I think, just getting carried away in a little religious fervor. And it doesn't seem like a bad vow, right? I mean, what's wrong with wanting to honor the Lord with a sacrifice? Um, God takes us here so often. He takes us to a certain point. And then at times, because we're human beings, we can enthusiastically run from where God's taken us to somewhere God isn't taking us at all. Now, I, I grew up in a charismatic background of churches, and so I I'm, I'm tend to be familiar with this, uh, this momentum that happens when the Spirit moves, and, and so God's really moving in people's hearts, and then, but then before you know it, uh, people are running home and bringing flags to church to wave and worship, and, and just getting a little carried away. And, and <laughs> you might look at it and be like, well, what's the harm in getting carried away? Jephthah makes this vow. What's the harm in that? Well, Jephthah crosses over, he fights the Ammonites, he wins, he devastates the 22 towns that they had, he's chasing them all over, and, and so Israel ends up being victorious over the Ammonites. And you're thinking, hey, no harm, no foul, nothing bad happened from getting carried away, God delivered victory, he's faithful, you know, God's of course always good at figuring out how to accomplish things, uh, how to accomplish his will in spite of us and our getting carried away from time to time. But then in verse 34, we read that when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child, except for, for he had neither son nor daughters except for her. And when Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I'm devastated because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Remember the vow. Whatever comes out of the house to greet me, I'm going to sacrifice as a burnt offering. Now, I don't know, you know, it, it's a strange vow because it, it would appear that it was customary for women to come out greeting the men uh, when they got home. Uh, now, we could, we could maybe suppose or speculate about which woman Jephthah was hoping would come out, maybe his mother-in-law, uh, maybe just his wife's cat, you know, maybe it wasn't a woman at all, he was just hoping the cat would come out, oh darn, honey, I gotta sacrifice this cat to the Lord, um, but this is where the story takes a real twist, right? Because there could be no harm in getting carried away, and yet at the same time, we have a great example here of where getting carried away, making a stupid vow before the Lord, uh, ends up resulting in a really horrible situation. And this is the whole issue, because when the Spirit of God is moving in our lives, that line between divine guidance and emotionalism can really wear quite thin. And I think in some ways, like, far be it from us to find ourselves making commitments or taking stances or making vows or moving into areas that God would have never asked us to because we're just getting 
carried away in our religious fervor. The daughter says, uh, you know, is agreeable to this situation. She says, hey, you've got to do what you promised the Lord you would do. Uh, give me two months to run around the, ho- the roam the hills and weep with my friends because I'm never going to marry anyone because uh, she's going to die young. So Jephthah says she can go and he gives her the two months. And when she returns, uh, he does what he vowed to do, the scripture says. And this is what stands out to me because um, for two months, Jephthah has an opportunity to realize that he is headed into uh, dangerous territory. He is, for two months, he has an opportunity to repent. I mean, what's chapter 10 about? It's all about God's people repenting and turning back to them. Uh, Jephthah, if he was going to follow the law of Moses, would have known, the law of Moses makes it so clear, that offering children as a burnt offering to God is not what God desires. In fact, it's what one of these other gods in this political thriller war between the gods desires, the god Molech, who is a detestable god to the people of Israel. Uh, Yahweh makes it clear to Israel in Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy, he's like, hey, do not sacrifice your children to me in the fire. That's what Molech does. I am a holy god. I'm not like these other gods. And he forbids his people from doing this. And yet for two months, the thought never crosses Jephthah's mind to, to cry out to God for mercy, to repent for vowing to do something that would be against God's law. Um, He never does it. And maybe it was he didn't want to appear compromised to those around him. You know, here's Jephthah. He doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Maybe he, I don't know. I don't know why. Whatever the reason might be, maybe a spiritual pride. But whatever the reason might be, uh, Jephthah never takes that opportunity. And I think um, in many ways, this is where we begin to see that that principle of idolatry falling back in there, where there's a degree of self-deception happening to the point where I am no longer living my worship out to God. Uh, Jephthah's perception is that God would want him to hold to this vow while he's breaking God's law to hold to it. And um, in that moment, he's he's believing that somehow he's uh, received a uh, a revelation from God that would hold supremacy over the revelation of God that's provided in the Torah. And I can imagine in his mind, he felt, I mean, I don't think he was eager to, to sacrifice his daughter. In his mind, he's thinking, hey, God told me to sacrifice his daughter. But we read the account and we're like, that's not what God told him to do at all, right? <laughs> he set himself up for this. He, he's the one who told himself he would do this. And now he's doing something he probably never would have done because the lines between his own will and his own circumstances and the line between the the will of the divine has become so blurry and mixed up in his own mind um, that he can no longer truly tell uh, what it is that God really wants. And the one thing that would give him clarity on that, to go back to the Torah and to read the law, the thing that would give him clarity on that, for whatever reason, he's not going there. And so, um, whatever the reasons might be, we have to accept here that, that Jephthah is not doing what God would have him do. You can't do things for God that he doesn't want you to do. Even if you're, you know, telling yourself, I'm doing this for God, if it's not something he wants you to do, you're not doing it for him, you're doing it for yourself. Anyways, whatever the reason, Jephthah remains totally committed to sacrificing his daughter, burning her in the fire as if he were, you know, worshiping Molech. And so he's really painted himself into a corner here. And any of you who've ever painted yourselves into a corner, you know, you're painting the floor, you realize you've painted yourself into a corner, you know, the right thing to do at that point would be to stop painting, right? 
But Jephthah doesn't do that. He just keeps the roller going until he's, you know, ruined the floor, I guess. And uh, one interesting thing in all of this is that, I mean, although God brings good out of it, and God has a way of redeeming our sin. I mean, God, this becomes sort of a tradition in Israel. Uh, the young women would go out into the mountains for a period of time to, uh, you know, to, to mourn for this, you know, daughter who was uh, sacrificed. Uh, Israel kind of has Jephthah stood up as a national icon of don't make stupid vows to God. Um, so God brings good out of it. I mean, in some ways, uh, this man who's meant to point to the deliverer, you know, he he sacrifices his only child, and we're seeing a hinting of God sacrificing his only son for our deliverance for sin. So good comes from it, but it could have been so different. I think we can say in all this, hey, lesson noted, I won't make stupid vows, um, and that's great, but I think there's really value in pushing just a little more into the nuance of this story uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to show us more where we might be carried away in religious fervor where God has said, hey, I want you to go here, and yet we have taken it all the way to there. Or, or maybe where in our own lives the lines have become blurred, you know, within the subjective context of this divine revelation where we feel like God's speaking to us, the lines are blurred between what God says and what we are saying to ourselves. And my encouragement to you is if you're finding yourself painting yourself into a corner, don't be like Jephthah and just keep on doing what you're doing, but but stop painting. <laughs> Repent. Stop painting. Call for help. Uh, the scriptures are so clear that God is our ever-present help in a time of need, and, and I think that if Jephthah would have realized what he had done, made the stupid vow, if he would have asked God for mercy, I would argue that he would have found mercy from God, and he could have lived a long and happy life with his daughter and eventually grandchildren. Things would have just been a way, way different. So, um, so Lord, we just ask you for wisdom, uh, in our own decisions, in our own desire, even to follow you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Uh, we don't want to be people who get carried away in religious fervor. We don't want to be people who make foolish vows or take foolish stances, uh, who paint ourselves into corners only to realize that's what we've done. Uh, we want to be people who move in humility and move in wisdom in step with your spirit. And so would you help us, uh, to be those kinds of people? people who are led by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.